when we think about every movement, whether it's the civil rights movement, the Chicano movement, that happened because of organizing and it happened because people in power had to be made uncomfortable. Welcome to Voces de Resistencia, a 9 to 5 Colorado podcast, where we dive into our work as the Colorado chapter of the 9 to 5 National Association of Working Women. My name is Catherine Garcia, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm your host for this episode. In this episode, we're sharing why we organize primarily in mobile home parks, what we've accomplished there, and what are the biggest challenges in doing so. My guest is 9 to 5 Colorado's Executive State Director, Cecia Guadarrama Trejo. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we hop into our subject for this episode, can you talk about your role at the chapter? Yes, currently I'm the Executive State Director for 9 to 5 Colorado. We have two other states that we work in, including Wisconsin and Georgia. I've been in this role for about seven months now, and that means I lead the chapter work and I'm really in charge of pieces of the fundraising work to make sure that we can sustain our work and continue to do the really important work in communities. So you were first introduced to 9to5 Colorado as a resident in a mobile home park. Did you grow up there? To an extent I did. I moved into that park when I was 15 years old, so I've lived there for over a decade at this point. And I've lived there you know, while I was in high school, while I was also in college and any other higher education that I've pursued since then. Um, and talk about your experience there. What was that like? Uh, my family lost our home in the foreclosure crisis in 2008, 2009, like hundreds of other American families at the time. And I, um, my, my mom found this mobile home park based off of another coworker that lived in the park. I remember that I didn't have a concept of what a mobile home was or what it looked like. And when we moved into that park, I noticed that it was pretty large. There were 400 lots. Most of the people that lived in there are families. So they were families like ourselves with small children, seniors, um, veterans, folks with disabilities, folks on fixed income. And because it's so large, it feels honestly like a small town. It's very rare for people to move. And so you quickly get to know your neighbors or you at least know who they are because people don't tend to move a lot. Um, calling it a mobile home is a misnomer because they're really meant to be placed in a foundation and then never move from there again because it can be very expensive and or the home can fall apart if you move it and oftentimes there's really nowhere to move it to. So it was like growing up in a small village, really. Um, you know, I think as someone who grew up in the 90s riding my bike, one of the signs of how you knew who was at uh, whose house was how many bikes were outside in your yard. So <laughs> that's what it was like. Or over in the summer, it wasn't unusual for someone to come knock on our door at 9.30 p.m. or 10 p.m. for a parent looking for their kid to see if Juanito was at our house. And I think that's very rare now, um, but it wasn't rare then because it, it was a safe neighborhood. All the kids knew each other, therefore like a lot of the families were connected in one way or the other. I love that, it sounds really communal. It, it is. Um, you can find anything that you need there. Um, you know, somebody who can fix your car, somebody who can make tamales for you, somebody who can bake a cake, someone who can, you know, fix your dress if it's too big. So just about everything you need. That's wonderful. As a chapter, why do we organize in mobile home parks? We started organizing in parks in 2015 when we were working on a transit campaign. 
at the time the funding that we were receiving was regarding transit work Denver has one of the most expensive public system transit systems in the nation compared to similar size cities and we were starting to see one that our members could not afford to use public transit and we were seeing a trend of bus routes cutting being cut from neighborhoods particularly where our members lived and we started to see that as we were noticing light rails being built or light rail plans that usually came paired with displacement of low-income and BIPOC communities. It's very common for families to live in parks in a in an intergenerational way and what I mean by that is that it's common for a family to live in a park and also the grandmother or the sister to live in that same park and oftentimes when they move they all talk to each other so when those two parks were displaced and closed a lot of those residents then moved to other parks in the Denver metro area particularly particularly in Adams County in the city of Aurora and when they started to notice issues in the parks that they had moved in they reached out again and a lot of the work happens through word of mouth that's really interesting that there's this dynamic of, of families wanting to be closer to each other um, and that kind of goes back to what you're saying about it's it's a very communal space for people to live in um, when y'all were organizing there how did fe- people feel about um, the situation where that like were they angry were they um, scared how did they feel you know, I wasn't with 9 to 5 at the time, but I have worked with parks that have faced displacement. And I think some of the biggest fears are, um, or some of the biggest feelings are fears and an overwhelming feeling of, of stress and anxiety of what is going to happen to you and your family. And the reason why, to go back to your previous question, why we focus there is we started to learn that Manufactured homes or mobile homes are the largest form of unsubsidized housing in the U.S. And they are already in a source of affordable housing that is existence, that is in existence, but is oftentimes ignored by local elected officials, by the legislature, by when we think about uh, plans for development. Because if you think about it, you know, I always ask people, where is the closest mobile home park to you, to where you live? Do you even know where it is? Oftentimes you might be driving by it every day, but you don't even know it's there because it's hidden and that's on purpose. Um, There's still a lot of stigma that is attached to living in a mobile home park because of the way it looks on the outside, which is really reflective of the landlord and not the residents themselves. Now, how do we determine which mobile home parks we organize in? Because we're, you know, we're Colorado, we're all over the state. So we're always, um, it seems like in different communities. So how do we determine which of those we target? So I feel like over the years, we have worked mostly in parks in the Denver metro area, including areas like Adams County, Boulder, Logmont, um, the city of Aurora, city of Denver. And the way we determine is really through word of mouth. People will usually tell someone, you know, nine to five helpless organized, whether it was about a towing issue or it was about their park being up for sale or their park closing. Oftentimes we determine by the capacity we have internally. You know, at one time we were kind of known as the mobile home hotline and we were getting calls from all over Colorado, but also all over the United States. One time we even got a call from Canada 
um, from someone who was living in a park there and had found our information somewhere online that we organized in parks. And so there's a couple of things, you know, we look at our capacity, we look at the types of issues and urgency that those communities might be facing. And we also take into consideration if the residents want us to organize and work there. Um, we don't go into a community unless we are asked to by residents. And it's also very important to us that the residents themselves are willing to also organize and to be part of the process because at the end of the day, they are the decision makers of what happens in their community. We can give them the tools and teach them the tools to organize, to do strategic planning, to um, create systems of democratic decision making, to do the background and research about their park, to provide legal opinions, but we can't decide for them. And that's interesting that you mentioned that because that kind of goes into my next question of, um, you know, when these folks are able to organize and we start to see um, these traits in, develop in developing leaders, how do you identify those leaders in these parks? Um, do they have certain attributes? I would say that for the most part, what I have seen is the residents who are most willing to step up into leadership roles are women. Um, for the most part, it's women in the community who are already connectors to the residents. So they often tend to be women who already know their neighbors, who are connected to other residents, who provide resources, who, you know, um, already are kind of the 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 person the trusted person that other neighbors go to to ask for advice what for do you, all kinds of things. Why do you think it's uh, the majority of those folks are women? I mean, I don't think that it's a surprise, or it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that um, when it comes to movement work and when we talk about any movement in history, women carry so much of the labor to make systems change, right? Unfortunately, our names are often not the ones written in the history books or certain only particular specific women are, are chosen to be written in a book of you being the leader who carried all that labor. Um, but I think it's not shocking to me when I see that. And part of it for me is I see that women have that drive for them. What's at stake is their family it's their children, and um, they're not afraid to speak up. Or even when they are afraid, they know that what's at stake is displacement. And so that is what energizes them. And I always, you know, when we get asked, like, how do you identify a leader? Who's a leader? I think of the fact that, like, a lot of these residents, particularly a lot of these, a lot of these women, they're already leaders, but no one's ever told them that you're a leader, right? Most of these women are immigrants, oftentimes monolingual Spanish speakers, and the fact that like you moved to a whole nother country, started from zero, you're able to sustain your family, that all in itself already creates resiliency. And um, yeah, I would say the way we identify leaders is someone who, you know, they, like usually it's the person who's really willing to be um, engaged. Oftentimes we have people who, they're the willing. They're the ones willing to be admin on the WhatsApp group, for example, <laughs> to add new neighbors. It can be small things like that to anywhere where someone's like, I want to pass out flyers, or I want to create our logo for our group, or oftentimes it's the person who is willing to open up their home 
for us to have meetings. It's very common for us to host community meetings in some inside someone's home because then it's very accessible to the residents. They don't have to leave the park. Oftentimes people don't have a source of transportation and therefore they can just walk to the meeting and we know it's a big risk, right? It's not easy for someone to say, I'm opening up my home for us to be having community meetings, even though the law is very clear that residents have the right to organize. Um, and so there's, there's a couple of factors, but I think it just comes very naturally that there are residents that are willing to um, step up and, and put in that uh, additional la layer of labor. As a chapter, we've seen great success in organizing in parks. Let's talk about what some of those wins have been. I will say that how we define success and wins for manufactured home communities in Colorado, um, maybe my answer is going to be a little bit different because some of the successes in organizing in parks is a lot of the legislation and changes we've been able to see at the state level. We've passed multiple bills since 2019 to ramp up protections for mobile home owners. And we have seen the way that legislators are more educated about what it means to be a mobile home owner, what it means to live in a park, and have also been very, or a lot more supportive to enhance protections. The other um, wins that we've had is we created a, a system within the state through one of these policies that now gives us more accurate data about how many parks we have, who owns these parks, uh, requirements of you know what kind of complaints people are submitting. And so I would say that is a, a success in itself. Um, the other big piece has been the opportunity to purchase protections that we've been able to pass in Colorado while we are still fighting against basically millionaires, billionaires, and hedge funds because of the opportunity to purchase. At this time, I, I don't want to say a number because I, I don't know what's accurate. There have been multiple communities that have been able to be bought up either by entities that are like resident-owned community models or by nonprofits who have made a commitment to not displace the, the residents to purchase the parks in order to preserve them and to keep them at an affordable rate or to create a model of a co-op so that long-term the vision is that the residents can own the community um, or when that's not possible that the residents have a say in what their community looks like. We've also had local governments step up because they also can benefit from opportunity to purchase and they've been able to purchase communities, particularly in rural towns where oftentimes mobile homes is the only form of affordable housing that exists in these mountain towns. And I would say those have been some wins, but I would say that the other wins are really about the narrative and the fact that the stories and the work in Colorado have uplifted the voices and the real stories that these are not just these disposable walls, but these are people's homes. And people have been able to share their stories about what that means for them and what it means to either have lost that home or what it means to live in it, including, you know, we were, um, we organized in a community called Denver Meadows that was one of, one of the communities 
that was part of a documentary called A Decent Home. That filmmaker was with the residents and was with 9 to 5, basically documenting everything for, I want to say, at least more than a year. Um, and that film has made it all over the U.S. It's been screened and showed in small and big towns and has really uplifted the the voices of those residents. And so, you know, the winds are, are kind of all over on, on the policy, but also um, the hope that I think it has been created that there is this stigma that exists, but that that's not the, the reality for most of, of the communities and the power that residents are taking back into their own hands. So conversely, what are some of the biggest challenges in doing this work? I know it's, you've said to me before, the work doesn't happen in a vacuum. What are some of the obstacles that we face when we organize in mobile home parks? Oftentimes, like, we're not taught in schools, right, what organizing is. We're not taught these concepts, even though when we think about every movement, whether it's the civil rights movement, the Chicano movement, any immigration movement, that anything, women's rights, whatever you can think of, that that happened because of organizing and it happened because people in power had to be made uncomfortable and had to release power, right? And so um, that's often not what is shown. I would say some of the biggest challenges in doing this work is um, obviously like funding and the resources in order to create sustainability because most of the time when we're going to go into a park we know that that is going to be multi-year work it's going to take multi attempts and multi years to to accomplish short-term and long-term goals in a park a short term in a park can be you know the the park is towing cars on a monthly basis you know that potentially is like a short-term campaign where you can get to a consensus. A long-term campaign is the rent increases are happening every year. So as you mentioned before, we have those short-term and long-term problems in these mobile home parks that we work on, um, including transit, rent, water quality. So how do those organizing efforts, when we're focusing on these issues, impact our policy work? I think the thing that distincts 9 to 5 is that our policy work is driven by real impacted people. And we work on policies that are to create systems change, and that is bold, which is often then hard to pass or hard to work on because it's going to take multiple years to be able to get to that, that finish line. Um, when it came to our transit work, we were able to get an income-based bus pass. So anyone who doesn't qualify for a category, for example, because you have a disability or you're a student or you get some sort of other discounted rate, you now qualify for an income-based bus pass where I think you pay, it's like a dollar and 10 cents, a dollar and 30 cents. And the requirements are very easy in order for you to access that bus pass. But that came because our, it was impacted people, right, and residents who were telling us, here's our challenge. Uh, the policies we worked on at the state level for renters and mobile home owners have been with real stories, with people that have expressed to us, here's the concerns that we have. The Mobile Home Park Act in Colorado is basically a big packet, and it tells you both landlord and homeowner responsibilities from the time 
before you even move into a park, while you live in a park, and what happens if a park is gonna close or go up for sale. And one example I can think of is trees, for example, which people might say, what's the big issue with trees, right? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, in a lot of parks, a lot of residents have issues with the trees because the landlord refuses to maintain the trees. And then people are afraid it's gonna fall on their home or you know we have a, a snowstorm or some sort of severe weather and then the tree does fall into the home and cuts into someone's roof. And then you're told, well, it's your responsibility to fix your roof. Um, and we put that into the legislation to be very clear that trees are, res are the, the responsibility of the landlord um, and to be part of that. So I would say that's the thing that our organizing impacts our policy work because we don't work on policies that is not informed by directly impacted people. And oftentimes when we are asked hard questions to negotiate because um, that is the process, we take into consideration what our members want and what are short-term and long-term campaigns, again, that we might need to commit to. It's interesting because I feel like oftentimes when you think about policy, it's like, well, of course, it's going to be what's representative of what people need, but that's not necessarily true. Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't have the hundreds and thousands of dollars to have multiple lobbyists at the Capitol, um, the way that landlords and park owners do, right, to be there every single day or oftentimes, uh, you know, follow the money, right? We all talk about that. We talk about uh, following the money or we talk about potentially like the quote-unquote research that might come out that is inaccurate, right? Um, to say like, here's why you shouldn't invest or you shouldn't protect in these families. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that for us, it's very clear. It's clear through a legislative process, you can see the people that are showing up to give testimony. You can see the stories that are being highlighted. Um, you can see who are the people that are meeting with legislators, that they're real people who are living in these homes and have proof or evidence or whatever you want to call it that these issues are real for them. So in thinking that, um, talking about real people, you know, we're, we're known for representing those folks where they live. Do you believe there is a space for both our grassroots approach and reliance on the state legislature to make change? I do. Um, I think that there is this new concept, right, that um, has currently been introduced maybe a few years, not too far ago around co-governance and what does that mean? Um, what does it mean to co-govern for someone to be the legislature who's sitting on that seat, who is the one, who's the champion, right? Or the carrier of a policy, trying to get it to the finish line, working with their colleagues to get it to the finish line and the role of community. That is the one that at the end of the day is going to be impacted by whatever policy changes do happen or don't happen. And I think we're all in a learning journey and a learning process. Um, I will say that there's still a lot of work for us to do to make a building like the state capitol a community space because it, it really is not oftentimes. And even in certain like small but big impact unspoken rules or rules that are created by I don't know who, we have to push, right? Um, we know that, for example, remote testimony has made a huge difference because a lot of our residents who can't get to the Capitol 
because of transportation or because they are living in rural mountain towns um, that they can do that testimony remotely we've been pushing and unfortunately it's not something the capital currently provides but we show up with our interpretation team right to make sure that our monolingual spanish speakers can understand what's happening um, we encourage our members to give their testimony in spanish and then we have to do the interpretation into english but we don't shy away from that we're not afraid to ask for more time um, even bringing food into the building because we know we're going to be at a community hearing for or a committee hearing for eight hours or more um, things things like that and so i think Obviously, there's still a lot of small and big steps to work on, but um, we envision, especially as we see more and more elected officials who are impacted themselves, that there is a shift. It's a shift for you to be a legislator if you've had to look and sign a lease in the past two years than if you've not even seen a, what a lease looks like from since 35 years ago, right? If I've lived in a home, owned my home, if I own multiple homes and I've never had to sign a lease to be a renter, I don't have that experience of what that looks like. And we're hearing more and more legislators um, share how they for themselves have to live through that now or do it for their children or um, it, it's just different to have that experience. Have there been any specific parks you've organized with that have been most impactful to your organizing journey or change your perspective in some way, especially as someone who grew up in a mobile home park? I would say that every park or community that I've worked with or residents been important to me. Um, two in particular would be, one was Denver Meadows. That was the first park I really dove into and supporting the organizing more deeply um, for the very first time. And those residents made a huge impact. You know, they showed up I think we showed up to city council meetings every Monday for about a year. And it didn't matter whether it was raining or snowing or it was 100 degrees outside, they kept showing up. Um, I would see residents that would come straight from work and go straight to, to city hall because what was at stake was their families. And even when that park ended up closing, I think that community paved the way for a lot of the success and wins and opportunities that current homeowners in Colorado now have. Um, and it just, yeah, I think that community, you know, going from fighting like all of the retaliation and all of the things they were facing internally, but then to fighting the closure, to to making an offer, and even, even that, right, at the time, there were no legislation um, guidelines that talked about opportunity to purchase there was a, that particular entity didn't even operate in Colorado, but because of the organizing and the resiliency of the residents, that offer was was made, even though it wasn't accepted. And then I saw, you know, I, I remotely organized a park um, in Durango, Colorado, which is about seven hours away from here. And I also think I learned that that was something new. I don't, I did not think you could do this remotely. Um, obviously, I had someone on the um, that lived in the community that was there in person, this amazing woman, uh, another woman of color who held the pieces down in person and I would hold a lot of the pieces, the strategy and the steps remotely. And um, it was a very small community. It was only 12 homes, but that community was successfully being, was able to be purchased by a nonprofit, a local nonprofit there. And so I think I saw kind of 
two different paths, right? Two different ends. And um, I didn't think it was possible. Obviously, it took a lot of phone calls and Zoom calls for those residents to even trust me. And I was very grateful that I got to meet them a year or like seven months later after the, the final purchase had been made. And yeah, I would say that was just impactful because especially for it to be a, a mountain town and a small town, to get to see and meet those residents in person after you've been on Zoom for so long. Um, it just was a different experience. And then also to see, you know, that uh, the entity that was trying to purchase that park was this corporate player that we have seen engage in a very, um, maybe like not the friendliest way to residents to see a park being taken off their hands even even if it's only 12 homes, I think to not belittle that win because for those 12 people, that means maybe 12 families that you've saved from displacement in the future. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and I'm really excited to see how we uh, continue to organize in mobile home parks. And I feel like you and your leadership and with your experience, that's gonna be really cool to see. So thank you. Thank you. So that wraps up episode three of our podcast. Thank you for joining us on Voces de Resistencia. In our next episode, we're talking about Colorado's Paid Family and Medical Leave Program, also known as FAMILY. We'll hear from our lead organizer, Caitlin Altone, on the struggle to pass this key worker justice initiative. And we'll talk about the benefits you're entitled to as a Colorado worker. If you were inspired by today's episode, please visit 9to5.org to learn more information about our mission and vision. There you can also give a monetary donation to help uplift our voices of resistance. My name is Catherine Garcia, and this is Voces de Resistencia, a 9to5 Colorado podcast. Thanks for listening.